You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Good morning, my name is David. I'm going to jump right in. Sarah, there are dirty dishes in the sink. Sarah, there are dirty dishes in the sink? Sarah, there are dirty dishes in the sink. Let's analyze what just happened there. And no, I don't speak to my wife that way. After 11 years of marriage anyways, no. Uh, But what just happened? I used the exact same propositional content, the same truth nugget, same fact each time. There are dirty dishes in the sink. What changes, however, is what I mean to do with that fact, with that statement of truth. In the first instance, I intend to make an assertion to describe the situation. My words match what is true in the world, or in this case, in the sink. In the second instance, I'm intending to ask her if maybe I miss something here. I'm trying to get the world to make sense, and I'm using my words to line things up with everything. In the third instance, I'm intending to get her to do the dishes, let's be honest. And honestly... Gentlemen, this doesn't work. And if it does work, the other shoe has yet to drop. So what I'm doing is I'm trying to reshape reality with my words. I'm intending to do the cleaning with my words as opposed to with my own hands. I use the exact same words each time. What matters is what I mean to do with those words. They're true words in this fictitious case. And yet, the truth or falsity isn't really the main issue in this particular kind of communication. So what I've just illustrated is a really simple form of speech act theory. It's a way of understanding what we do with our words. So I spent the last three years developing uh, this philosophy in the context of corporate worship. And I wrote my dissertation along those lines. What do we do with words in corporate worship? What is happening when I ask you to greet each other? What is happening in reality when the word of God is read publicly? What's happening when a prayer of benediction is pronounced over us? What's happening at the Lord's table as these all-important words that we say? What is God doing? What are we doing as we speak and listen and sing in the context of corporate worship? So there are three pieces to speech act theory. I've illustrated the proposition Uh, the truth nugget, that's called the locution. I'm going to get fancy this morning. That's called the locution, the sentence itself or the statement. There's also what I want to do with the words or the illocutionary point or illocutionary force when I speak or when I write. Lastly, there's the results from my words or the perlocutionary effect. For example, did Sarah hear my assertion when the that the sink is full? Does she understand it and acknowledge that fact in some way? That would be the perlocutionary effect. Or does she answer my question? That would be perlocutionary effect. Or in the last example, did she come do the dishes finally? Whatever you do as a result of what I've done with my words is the perlocutionary effect. And really, I have no way of predicting with 100% accuracy what someone may do in response to my words. All I really have is what I intend by it and the context in which we say it. In corporate worship, though, 
This is why I wrote about this. In the life of the believer, perlocutionary effect is a little different. When we sing here in this space, when we come to the table and partake together, God is speaking to us, and we're responding to him. Our response of worship is a perlocutionary effect of the gospel being preached to us in the songs, in the sermon, at the table. God's speech has a perlocutionary effect or response that's much more predictable than other forms of communication. We're going to explore a little bit of that this morning. So when I was building my dissertation, I, of course, wanted to know what the Bible would say about God's speech and our speech, both in general and in corporate worship specifically. So one of the first verses that left at me from the text is Isaiah 55, 11. You just saw it. You're going to see it again. And I'm so grateful to have the privilege of preaching from this chapter this morning. So feel free to turn or swipe there in your Bible as I set the stage for where we are in Isaiah 55. Because as I've said before, I'm sure I'll say many times again, the three most important rules for studying God's word are context, context, context. So the context for Isaiah chapter 55 is very closely tied to the context of the last two weeks, chapters 53 and 54 that Pastor Brad has preached. And that broader context is Isaiah foretelling encouragement to the people of God when they experience terrible despair at the destruction of their country and the deportation of their people to a strange land. The book of Isaiah lies within the genre of prophecy that often takes the form of poetry. So keep those things in mind as we read. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah were in the context of Judah dealing with the bully of Assyria and the drama of the other surrounding nations picking sides and arguing about who could win in a fight and who should start it and who should pay for it. Sounds a little like some world leaders today. Uh, but as Assyria ultimately conquered Israel, though, the northern portion of the kingdom, things got real. And it increased the suffering of God's people. But because Israel had sinned against God by not trusting, not obeying, he was allowing this to happen. In the next section of Isaiah, chapters 40 and beyond, his prophecy jumps ahead to when Judah, the southern kingdom, is finally conquered, but not by Assyria. They got what God promised them. Assyria was completely absorbed by another power, Babylon. The Babylonians did what Assyria couldn't do. They took the city of Jerusalem. They subdued Judah. And now all of God's people, the Israelites, have been crushed beneath the power of invading groups. And the Jews who were taken to Babylon, they were devastated. They felt that God had abandoned them. This is why God gave these words to Isaiah in these chapters. This is why God gave them the servant songs. The promise that when you are crushed in despair and suffering, remember the one who would be crushed for you and for your sin, who would be bruised and broken and beaten to bear the weight of your sin in your place. And because of what he does, God says, I will dwell with you again. I will rebuild Jerusalem into a breathtakingly beautiful city, and you'll need to make room for all the people who will see the glory of God hear of the Messiah, and put their trust in the Lord and Yahweh. And a side note, please remember that when you read through the text and you see the Lord in all caps, 
It's a stand-in for God's covenant name, for Yahweh. So you may hear Brad or I or anybody who preaches substitute that in as we read the text. So speaking of, would you stand with me as we read Isaiah chapter 55? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh, that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for Yahweh, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So let's walk through this text. Then I'll point out some important features of God's word and ways to apply it. Now, as we read verse 1, before you get excited, this is some sort of socialist enterprise being foisted on the people of God. Because I'm sure somebody's proof texted that somewhere, right? Come by without money and without price. Remember, the three most important rules of studying scripture, right? Context, context, context. Verse 2 helps us see the bigger picture here, that God, through the prophet, is using metaphor. God has told his people repeatedly, trust me, be satisfied with me. And yet they continually use their resources in ways that betray where their trust really is. God's seeking to satisfy his people completely with rich food, with what is deeply and truly good, if we would listen diligently to him. As we come to him, we are to listen to him. His word is rich food, something that makes our souls live. We'll come back to this listening to his speech But at this point, God immediately connects it with the benefits, with something else he has said, a covenant that cannot be broken, that's characterized by steadfast love, or my favorite Hebrew word, chesed, 
And you know I'm going to ask you to say it when I say it, right? So let's say it together. Chesed. Get that uh, communion bread broken back up in there. Chesed. So we got to go to the Museum of the Bible with our kids a couple weeks ago, and one of my favorite parts was walking into the exhibit that's a recreation of a street in the town of Nazareth. So there's a small synagogue with a guy with a legit beard in there to explain how synagogue worship would have been for Jesus, where they kept the scroll, how they'd read from it. So this in-character rabbi then explained that much of what they did was ask questions during their teaching. So he then asked me and my kids, do you know what chesed is? And I think he may have been a bit surprised when my face lit up and I immediately said, ooh, ooh steadfast love. <laughs> he then explained from the Old Testament that chesed is God's covenant love and nothing we can do can make him stop loving us once he has made that covenant with us. That's all in the Old Testament. So of course, Clara, my daughter, then asked, what's that door behind you? And are you real? And so we made a hasty exit. Uh, but that's the steadfast, sure love of God, his covenant love, as he made it clear with David. And again, remember the context. So the people of Judah, where David's city, Jerusalem was, would immediately recall to mind all that they knew of David's story, of the covenant God made with David when Isaiah references it here. As the text continues, God then hints at the nations that will run to Yahweh because of how faithful he will ultimately be to his people. And within this greater picture of God's faithfulness, his covenant love, God extends forgiveness to his people. Isaiah is basically saying on God's behalf, repent and believe. That's a much more New Testament way of framing it, right? But perhaps that's entirely resonant with the theme of return to the Lord for he has and will pardon you. For his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And for some reason, we want to argue with this. See, if I were God, I'd do it this way. It's clearly the most efficient way. Thankfully, both Bruce and Evan Almighty have given us a sacrilegious example of how foolish we really are. Even the best mind is broken by sin. The most brilliant human is still only made in the image of God. They're not given God's mind. In fact, wanting to have God's mind and know his thoughts is one of the ways of understanding the first sin of Adam and Eve. Because our minds are broken by our selfishness and insatiable desires. I'm glad that God's ways are above my ways and that his thoughts are above my thoughts. That is so comforting because I trust him. When my son asks me if he can jump from the top of the back deck, which is 12 feet off the ground, to the trampoline and then into the tree in the woods, I simply tell him, no. My son is seven, and so my thoughts are higher than his thoughts. And yet he will argue with me and want to have a deeply explained answer for why. He can't do what he wants to do. And ultimately, I ask him, do you trust me? And he will glumly admit, yes. Why does he trust me? Because I have demonstrated my love for him so many times. I'm not trying to be mean to him. I'd love to jump off the back deck too. What an awesome idea. But 
I'm able to see that the likelihood of someone breaking something important is very high. And so I ask him to trust me, even though he can't follow my complicated logic and risk analysis of the trampoline stunt idea. But now we come to the verse that I mentioned back in the beginning. A verse that provides a theological account of speech act theory. Of what God does with his words. He explains, so shall my word be. And here's the context for verse 11. Remember how important context is? Verse 10 gives us an illustration of the agrarian society that characterized the ancient Near East. And we get a picture of the water cycle and its impact as an analogy for what God's word does. So hear this. God's word is the way that he has made, is making, and will make all things new. And he will not and cannot fail. The rain falls from the clouds. And it doesn't immediately return back to the clouds. That would be really weird looking. Instead, it waters the earth. This water is then part of the cycle, which I hope you've learned at this point in your life. Uh, Lily Pittman has this awesome shirt that shows the water cycle. So you can look for her if you need a reminder. But the water that is then on the ground either continues on its flow to the ocean, where it's part of the evaporative cycle that forms new clouds that bring more rain, or the water is absorbed as a nutrient. This is where it ties into God's word. God's word goes out of his mouth and then it brings forth fruit in those who listen diligently. Fruit that gives new seed for the sowers to continue to sow and to be made into bread to sustain the hearers. Do we let God's word work in us in that way? So now think all the way back to the opening illustration. Uh, let's pick the middle one. It's a little safe. Uh, Sarah, there are dirty dishes in the sink. The perlocutionary effect that I'm looking for would be an answer, like her response, yes, uh, those are from this morning. Would you mind doing those? Or even better, uh, yes, those are from this morning. I'll get to them in a little bit. Thank you for noticing, honey. <laughs> so now, as I said, I have no way of guaranteeing that second response. That's not in my power. That's not within the realm of possibility for my words. I cannot accomplish the perlocutionary effect. But God, whose ways are higher than my ways, when God intends something, when he speaks, he can do it. God's word does what it says it will do. Hallelujah. Don't you see what this means? God's word cannot fail. It accomplishes exactly what he intends for it to accomplish by the power of the Holy Spirit that's at work in us and in the world. So this verse in Isaiah, tucked away in chapter 55, is an illustration of the power of speech act theory to explain how things might work, how words do things. So of course, the God who speaks is able to do exactly what he wants to do with his words. And that's not just the philosophy telling us this, that's God's own word tells us this. Even here in Isaiah, back in chapter 46, verse 11, God says, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I've purposed it and I will do it. And so we see that God can do what he intends with his word and the fact that God's word makes. And firstly, God's word makes creation. Remember Genesis 1 through 3. This is a pretty powerful example. What does God's word do? It makes things. 
there were no things. God speaks, and now there are things. So maybe we should listen when this God speaks. God is able to make beautiful things out of literally nothing. Literally nothing. He created the intricacy of the stars with the words that he spoke. He framed the universe with a phrase. His word is the way he has made all that we see around us. God sent forth his word and it succeeded in what he sent it to do. Our sitting here in this space at this time reminds us that God succeeded in making things when there was nothing by speaking. God's word then reframes the universe when sin enters the picture. As he speaks, God reshapes his creation by allowing sin to have its consequences and by promising that will not always be like this. Because God's word makes a family. Remember John 1, the parallel to Genesis 1 through 3, right? Everything was made through the word of God. Here clarified as Jesus. And Jesus, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, right? The word of God then lives out and teaches the words of God in a dynamic representation of God's power and glory so that many would follow him and be part of God's kingdom. Think about all that Jesus' words do. He calls out disciples to follow him, and they do it. He tells people their sins are forgiven, and they are. He tells people to get up and walk, and they do. He speaks to demons, and they obey. He speaks to the wind, and it obeys. He speaks to the blind, and they can see. God's word makes a family through his son, Jesus. As Jesus, the suffering servant, bears our sin in our place on the cross, we see some crystal clear examples. Jesus speaks, Father, forgive them. And the Father hears his plea and forgives. Jesus speaks, it is finished. And it is finished indeed. There is no more work that you must do to be saved. There's nothing that you can accomplish that Jesus has not already done for you. There's no payment you can make to enter God's presence. Jesus already made a way by rending the temple veil, by opening up the way for the Father to adopt us as sons and daughters. And we are sons and daughters because God's word says it. At the cross, Jesus speaks Mother, behold your son. And in this moment, Jesus really is reframing reality for Mary and John, using this statement to entrust Mary to John's care. Jesus did something profound with this little simple phrase, reshaping his own family. One of the reasons that speech acts can work in this way is because of the constitutive power of language. What I mean is, we can make things into reality, not in the same way God did, right? But in similar ways. Consider a wedding. I now pronounce you husband and wife. A moment before, there were two people, and after this phrase is uttered by someone recognized with that authority, then in the next moment, we have a couple. Speaking that phrase did something. 
By virtue of the power invested in the ordained person, the institutional facts, to use the philosophical phrase, when that phrase is spoken, the two people who are not married are now married. Reality was just reframed by words that were spoken. A family was created. God's word makes a family. Remember the language of marriage just from last week between God, the maker, and his people. Or consider baptism, which we got to enjoy just a couple weeks ago. When someone is baptized, and Pastor Brad says out loud, I now baptize you, my brother or sister, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Brad is doing something, both with his words and with his arms, as he helps that person under the water. And things have changed for this person as the words that Jesus gave us at his ascension are acted on in this important ceremony. The baptized person is is different now because of what has been said and what has been done. The words play an important role in making them a part of the family of God because God's word makes a family. And my favorite example is, as Jesus said, who are my mother and brothers? Those who do the will of my father. That's my family. God's word also makes creation new. Grateful to sing this truth and to be reminded in our text. We've seen this actually throughout Isaiah. As the prophet reminds us of the day that is coming. And we get another reminder here in our text. This beautiful picture. Because ultimately, all things will be made right. The suffering of life right now, the despair of the people of God, they were feeling in exile, uh, the suffering that we feel under the weight of oppressive ideologies, the suffering the church around the globe feels by the fear of punishment or execution for trusting Jesus. It is all, as Paul puts it, a light and momentary suffering in the face of the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. The trees will clap. The mosquitoes won't bite humans anymore. The mountains will sing. There will be true, lasting peace between all people groups who gather at the feet of God. And he will reign in our midst as he's always intended. Because God's word will come to pass. It will succeed in what it's been sent to do. Over and over in the Bible, we're reminded that creation will be made new by the word of his power. God's word succeeds. One of the ways we see this play out is the fact that Isaiah reminds us, right? God's ways are not our ways. And accordingly, his power is not our power. The brightest mind, the strongest feats, The bravest sacrifices, they're only shadows of the true light, Jesus, who is the perfect human and fully God. He baffled the rabbis as a preteen. He bore the weight of all our sin as he carried the weight of the cross on his broken back. And he did not consider his place at the Father's right hand as something to be grasped, but rather he let go of all of it in order to do what we can't do. Live a sinless life and be a propitiation, a satisfying substitute for our punishment. So God's power in his word, especially, is different than our power. 
So let's consider again how God speaks and creation obeys. At first he speaks and all things are. And then much later when Jesus speaks, the brokenness of disabled bodies is made whole. The wind itself ceases at a phrase uttered by Jesus. When we use our speech to do things, this ain't happening. I tell my children, listen and obey at least 17 times an hour. And they may actually respond once a day. Jesus says, listen and obey once, an immediate perlocutionary effect. That's power in his word. We don't have that power. But consider what Jesus does as he stands at the entrance to Lazarus' tomb. He speaks. He speaks a simple propositional statement, a command, come forth. And a very alive Lazarus stumbles out, probably a little confused at first, because God's word succeeds in what it's sent to do. And Jesus very specifically sent a word that would raise Lazarus And it did. We don't naturally have that power in us. His power is not the same as our power. But the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and me if we profess that Jesus is Lord. And as we speak about Jesus and spread this good news, that power moves through us. More on that in a moment. God's word succeeds, even though we don't know what that means or understand how these things happen, like Lazarus or the healings or even what exactly is going to happen after we die. Because his thoughts are not our thoughts. God knows what it will take to accomplish his plan. If you've seen the Robert Downey Jr. version of Sherlock, You might remember the scenes that kind of pause and you get a glimpse into his mind as he determines exactly how hard to punch this one guy and then it will cause a series of chain reactions where all the guys fall over and Sherlock is left unscathed in the middle of the room. And then it backs up and then does it in real time and all of us are like, wow, I could totally do that. (laughs) But Sherlock's thoughts are not our thoughts, right? That's the point of that scene. But God knows what it will take to succeed. He processes things in a higher way than us. He's aware of all the implications, complications, and trajectories. God's love is completely without selfishness. His plans are completely good. His tensions are completely consistent with ultimate justice, righteousness, and perfection. And as speech act theory reminds us, Intentions give trajectory to our words. The intentions and the words together do things. And God's intentions are good and right. And when he speaks, even though we can't fully grasp where he's going with a phrase or a statement or even a whole chunk of scripture, his thoughts are not our thoughts, and yet his word will succeed. Perhaps this is why he reminds us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, making us new creations in Christ. As the Holy Spirit works to make us more like Jesus, to make us more human and whole, we'll both learn to trust God more 
And in that trusting, perhaps learn to recognize his ways as we lean into what he's told us about his thoughts in his speaking and in his word. And lastly, God's word will succeed where ours does not, in part because he has won the victory and his victory is our victory. The suffering servant and God's intimate love for us in the last two chapters of Isaiah, they make this so clear. We can know that God's word will succeed because we've seen him do it with Jesus. The one who bore our sin, who stood in our place, he was resurrected as proof of God's love, as proof of what is coming. And now all of us, 2,000 years later, share in and experience that victory, one at the cross and in the resurrection. God's word succeeds in what it's sent to do. So when Jesus said it is finished, it was finished for us. Think about when a victory is won, the victors celebrate. Every stinking viral touchdown celebration that you'll see through the rest of football season, the victors celebrate. That's what we do here when we gather on Sundays. As Brad said, it's a resurrection Sunday, every Sunday. So even if the Panthers don't win, we can celebrate the greatest victory that someone else won in our place. Out of that victory, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's made us into a priesthood of believers, and he's made us ambassadors. So the whole world might know that Jesus' victory is our victory. And this is where speech act theory just overwhelms me. Because God's word is the way he has made, is making, and will make all things new. And he will not and cannot fail. God's living word is the person and work of Jesus. And God's written word, the Bible, is the sovereignly protected account of God's plan for the world and the victory of Jesus. Everything that God said in the Bible has come to pass and will come to pass because he has the power to make it happen. But what is happening when we preach the word of God? When we read the word of God, when we sing the word of God, these questions have haunted me since my dissertation. They were the driving questions for my research. And yet after a year of research and writing, I barely began to answer what happens when we do those things in corporate worship. In Isaiah 51, 16, God says, I have put my words in your mouth. How humbling would that be? In Isaiah 50, chapter, or chapter 50, verse 4, Isaiah refers to the power to sustain with a word him who is weary. What power is that? The power and potential of the Holy Spirit in our lives to bring about the effects of God's word in us and in all hearers? That's tremendous. Because we are ambassadors, as Paul reminds us. And what does an ambassador do? Speaks on behalf of a sending agent, right? The words of the ambassador count as the words of whoever sent that person. So the U.S. ambassador to China, when speaking in a meeting with Chinese officials, bears the authority and power of the United States government in the words that he or she speaks. When we speak the words that God has given to us, as we go into all the world, 
We are representing him and his intentions for all to see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. We become a part of the water cycle. God brings rain to our neighbors through us. When we tell of the good news of Jesus as ambassadors, God speaks through us. God's word will not return without accomplishing the purpose for which it's sent. So please hear this. You don't have to bring out the perlocutionary effect. You don't have to do the thing that is the result. God does that by his power. You need to be faithful, broken vessels of God's power, God's glory in you. So when God speaks, even through us, things happen. God has shown his steadfast love, his loving kindness to us, just as he showed it to David and the Messiah, Jesus. An everlasting, sure covenant, because God spoke it. By the power of his word, God has saved us, has raised us to new life, and he continues to speak and even sing over us of his mercy given to us through Jesus, of his love shown perfectly in Jesus, and of his grace made abundant to us in our weaknesses and our foolishness and our suffering through the perfect love of Jesus, our Savior. As we saw in the suffering servant two weeks ago, Jesus was made weak so that we might be made strong. He suffered so that we might live. He bore the punishment for sin, and God has looked on you with mercy. And in what could be seen as a stunning turn of events, the king of all creation, who brings about reality by his word, has given us, his people, the ministry of reconciliation, the role of ambassador. So he speaks through us, and hearts are made alive. Eyes are opened. Ears are opened. The wounds of sin are healed as God's word does its work. At creation, God breathed into Adam. At the ascension, Jesus breathed on his disciples. And at Pentecost, the Father breathed out the Holy Spirit on the church. So with his breath in our lungs, his word as a lamp unto our feet, his word as nourishment to us, let us speak of his goodness until all of creation is made new and joins in that refrain. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you do what we cannot do. You have done what we could not do. We pray that you would help us to live in light of these truths, to let your word nourish us, change us, to let your spirit work in us and through us. Thank you for your great love for us that was shown so clearly in Jesus. And help us to proclaim that with the things that we say and the things that we do. We love you and are grateful that you loved us first. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, 
go to graceccnc.org.